folks. Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip, scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. If there's one thing trans people are good at, it's finding each other. Throughout trans history, no matter how isolated we have been, trans people have always made attempts to find each other, to connect, to correspond. Sometimes these attempts are failures, but other times they make history and change the course of our community forever. In this episode of OFTV, we'll discuss the life of the ultimate trans correspondent. This man dedicated his short-lived life to connecting with other trans people across the continent and connecting them to each other in a way that had never been done before. It's no exaggeration to say that he single-handedly created the first iteration of a global FTM community. And to him, we owe even the concept that gender and sexuality are separate but interacting forces. Without him, the trans community would not exist as we know it today. So join us in this special double-length episode as we tell the groundbreaking tale of the first out gay trans man, Lou Sullivan. The moment I wake up, before I put on my makeup, I say a little prayer for you. Walk home in my hair now, and wondering what dress to wear now, I say a little prayer for you. The man who would become Lewis Graydon Sullivan was born on June 16, 1951, which makes him a Gemini. And just so you know, his rising sign is Virgo. He was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His father, John Eugene Sullivan, owned a small moving company and his mother, Nancy Louise Sullivan, was a homemaker and sometimes a sales clerk at a stationery store. They had married after the war. John and Nancy had six children in all, including Kathleen Marie, John Jr., Bridget Therese, Mary Ellen, and Patrick Rory, of which Lou was the third. The Catholic family lived in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin, which I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong, where the GI Bill helped them purchase a house and they were quite emotionally close as a family. Lou took to Catholicism early and, like his siblings, attended Catholic schools. Like many trans people, Lou noticed from an early age that he was different from other children. In games of dress-up, he took on the male roles, particularly cowboys, as he idolized the recently released Disney film Davy Crockett, and quickly became aware that these games of dress-up meant something more to him than they did to other children. He described these experiences in a 1979 article in the Gay People's Union News. Quote, that cowboy in me could only appear as a dress-up, a pretend, but it was so real to me somehow that finally I was completely lost in it and scared someone might find out how deeply I felt it. At age five, I had a Davy Crockett birthday party. The climax was when I appeared. I was Davy Crockett and I can still remember my thrill at the moment. And everyone else thought we were just playing, pretending, but I wasn't. And it was even more frightening because I knew I wasn't. Over the next few years, he led his two sisters in a game called Playing Boys, which as you might expect, 
involved just that, playing boys, taking on male names and pretending to be boys. That was it. That was a whole game. Unlike his sisters, for Lou, the game didn't end when he was alone. He would continue to play boys by himself. These incidents of what he would later describe as cross-dressing continued as he got older, taking on a more secretive tone. Meanwhile, his sister and mother began trying to steer him towards more traditional femininity. At the time, he hoped that puberty and receiving his period would transform him into a regular woman and dispel the deep sense of difference he had felt as long as he could remember. But when this didn't pan out, his interest waned. While he had no attraction to women and lost interest in being considered a woman, he did develop an early fixation on gay men and later drag queens in particular, whom he related to as people who identified as men but appeared to the world as women. The feminist movement and lesbianism had no appeal for him. He both identified with and was sexually interested in gay men. He had first received a journal at Christmas 1960, and by 1964 was a regular diarist, filling his journals with pages and pages of questions about gender and sexuality, and writing poems and short stories that reflected these themes as well. Keeping a diary would be a practice Lou continued until his death. up in Beatles mania, joining the official Beatles fan club and going to see their movies and concerts repeatedly after discovering them one night on the Ed Sullivan show. Lou begged his mother for a Beatles haircut and began dressing and acting like the members of the band, even going so far as trying on a British accent and taking up guitar lessons. He wrote in one diary entry published in Bryce D. Smith's excellent and thorough biography of Lou Sullivan, Daring to Be a Man Among Men, quote, I'm not shy anymore. I don't care if people think I'm crazy. I'm going to be myself. And guess who helped me to this? The Beatles. His older brother, Johnny, changed his name to Flame and began drinking and bucking authority. Flame had acne so severe that he'd been subjected to radiation treatments and put on display at medical conferences. According to Bryce Smith, Lou's closeness to Flame would engender a deep-seated mistrust of medical authority that would come to fruition much later and change the course of trans medicine. Flame grew his hair long, sparking tension in the Sullivan household, and Lou watched in horror as his brother was mistreated by school, the Catholic youth organization, and even kicked out of retail stores. Eventually, Flame was forced to leave the family home. By 14, he moved on from Beatlemania and, perhaps influenced by his brother's new outsider persona, became obsessed with Bob Dylan. Come gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone And if your breath to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the time this interest in beatniks led him to the avant-garde cafe espresso in east milwaukee where he and flame found a refuge in the counterculture the counterculture with its gender bending aesthetic and liberation politics attracted both boys lou began to question more and more who he was he wrote in his diary, quote, I want to look like what I am, but I don't know what someone like me looks like. At age 15, he took to putting rags down the front of his pants 
as makeshift packers, wearing them all day, both hoping and dreading that anyone else would notice. He would later be the first FTM to openly describe the experience of cross-dressing in male clothing as erotic, a view still largely undiscussed today. His mother wasn't having it though, and enrolled him in a charm school. In response, Lou bought cowboy boots and would wander around town, noting the homophobic slurs men yelled at him, taking a certain pleasure that they considered him a fag rather than a dyke. In these wanderings, he would eventually meet a hippie named Don, whom he briefly dated, but Lou became turned off when Don proposed marriage and began expecting Lou to know how to do feminine activities like sewing and cooking. Lou continued to spend time at the avant-garde cafe and in October 1967 was involved in an altercation there. Several mainstream teen boys entered the cafe and began assaulting the long-haired beatnik and hippie men, the men whom Lou identified with as fellow gender transgressors. Lou jumped into action, fighting them off and pulling them away from their victims. While Lou prided himself in how he handled the situation, this would be the beginning of the end of the cafe as similar assaults continued throughout the next year and city officials worked to shut the space down. It closed in 1968. That year, 1968, Lou, who was becoming heavily invested in social justice causes, brought his family out for the March on Milwaukee, a march in response to the death of Martin Luther King Jr. that demanded an end to racist housing discrimination. He participated in a number of other marches and protests over the next few years, getting arrested alongside his boyfriend Mark at an SDS protest in February 1970. Lou had begun dating Mark after meeting him at the cafe in 1968. Mark was feminine, tall, and thin, frequently the subject of homophobic slurs himself. His parents discouraged Lou from dating Mark, insinuating that Mark was a homosexual. But this ended up having the opposite of the intended effect, essentially catapulting Lou into Mark's arms. Mark was the first person who accepted Lou's self-identification as a man. In fact, he found it hot. After high school graduation, Lou and Mark moved into separate rooms in the same house in a hippie neighborhood of Milwaukee. They lived there for nearly two years. Lou would later write, quote, For too long, my boyfriend and I hid out with each other. I remember well how much I wanted to literally lock us up together in our place, board up the windows from the outside world, and save us from everything. Talk of marriage was suddenly interrupted when Mark moved across town. Lou took up work at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee as a secretary, allowing him to take classes there while not officially enrolling as a student. This gave him the opportunity to seek out gay literature, particularly John Retchie's scandalous bestseller, City of Night, a favorite novel of mine too, which is sort of a tell-all novel chronicling the gay underworld of cruising, street queens, and drugs in 1960s America. The book heightened Lou's interest in drag queens and caused him to break off all talk of marriage with Mark, writing in his diary, what can become of a girl whose real desire and passion is with male homosexuals? That I want to be one, that I fancy him to be one and pretend I'm a man when we make love. His discovery of City of Night also plunged Lou into a depression as he couldn't find a way to get himself into that world. There were no women who identified as gay men in any of the literature he read. He tried to give up on the idea and become more feminine, but it ended up turning Mark off. A pivotal experience occurred in 1971. Lou later wrote, quote, the awakening came for me when a beautiful gay came up to me on the street in the fall of 1971 and I couldn't take time to even talk to him because I was meeting my boyfriend on the bus and it was coming a block away. And I knew when I got on that bus and left that beauty standing there that I'd never stop regretting that moment. In 1972, Mark and Lou opened up their relationship to non-monogamy and referred to each other as lovers rather than as boyfriend and girlfriend. Lou gave up trying to use femininity to catch men for casual sex, wanting instead to have the experiences of cruising he read about in City of Night. 
He got his chance soon and cruised a man on the street named Bo. They went back to Lou's room and had sex. Bo left, but came back two weeks later, asking if Lou wanted to have anal sex. Lou jumped at the offer to have sex as he put it, quote, a beautiful man making love to another beautiful man. Bo was a drifter and, in essence, a hustler who asked Lou for money, which Lou found intensely erotic and in line with the City of Night novel that he so loved. Bo moved in with Lou for a time, and Lou bragged that he had a kept man waiting at home. But Bo moved out in 1973 and shortly thereafter disappeared from Lou's life. His relationship with Mark continued, Lou projecting his own fantasies onto Mark and encouraging Mark to dress more femininely and initiate flirtations with men. But as erotic as Lou found this, he was also filled with jealousy, frustrated that this gay world, which was so easily reachable to Mark, remained impenetrable to Lou. Infatuated with Lou Reed's Transformer album, which you can hear more about in our very first episode of OFTV, Lou Sullivan borrowed his brother Patrick's leather jacket and began introducing himself as Lou, getting a rush by imitating Lou Reed, the type of man he so desperately wanted to be. He promptly bought his own leather jacket and adopted an even more masculine aesthetic than before, but accessorizing it with jewelry in hopes of coming across as gay. Lou and Mark attended a lecture the next month by the famous transsexual Christine Jorgensen at UWM, opening up to Lou the question of identifying as a transsexual for the first time. But being trans like Christine Jorgensen would have meant to Lou at the time his ending up a straight man rather than a gay man. In 1973, Lou began cross-dressing full-time, including at work, where it was read as a feminist statement. One of his co-workers, Dorothy, took this especially to heart and saw in Lou a fellow sister in the struggle of women's consciousness. However, the relationship Dorothy imagined didn't pan out when she learned of Lou's identification as a man. The breakdown of their friendship is chronicled by Lou in his article for the GPU's newsletter, titled, A Transvestite Answers a Feminist. In it, Lou publishes a series of letters between himself and Dorothy as Dorothy rails against gay men's promiscuity and tries to dissuade Lou from valorizing what Dorothy sees as a vain and empty life in favor of a feminist identity that rejects gender entirely. The exchange ended their friendship, Dorothy cold-shouldering Lou from then on. The article, Lou's first published piece, is reprinted in Susan Stryker and Stephen Whittle's Transgender Studies Reader if you'd like to check it out. A week later in April, he attended a meeting of the Gay People's Union, which met in the basement of a community center. He went with his friend Liz, who had recently come out to him as a trans woman. The GPU encouraged Lou to join their lesbian discussion group, which he tried attending, but quickly found it held no interest. When propositioned by a stone femme in the group, Lou tried explaining that he was a gay man and not a lesbian, and it didn't go over well. However, Lou was eventually accepted by the GPU. He stayed with them for a number of years, throwing himself headlong into the world of activist organizing. While many post-Stonewall gay groups split along gender lines as separatist feminism took hold across America, GPU, thanks in part to Lou's efforts to challenge these ideas, managed to stay together and inclusive for both lesbians and trans people. Before Lou published his first article in the GPU News, he ended up sharing it with his mother when his mother brought up something she'd read about a trans man in a magazine. Lou came out to her and she said, 
If he ever pursued transsexual surgeries, she would be supportive. A somewhat shocking stance for the early 1970s. Mark, however, was troubled by the public declaration of homosexuality the article would entail. But Lou ignored this. Eldon Murray, the editor of GPU News, invited Lou over for a talk about the article before it was published, and from then on welcomed Lou as a member of the gay community, the two creating a lifelong friendship. Eldon also lent him a copy of Harry Benjamin's The Transsexual Phenomenon. The book was a mixed blessing, heightening Lou's fears that being a gay trans man was not an option. He started a quest to look up everything about trans people in UWM's libraries, trying to find someone, anyone like him. Ultimately, he turned up nothing, but his trans woman friend Liz insisted that his sexual fantasies about being a man with other men were proof positive that he was a transsexual. She helped him learn how to bind and then took him to a drag bar called the Riviera or the River Queen, I'm a little unclear, where she introduced him to a transsexual belly dancer who knew all about hormones and where to get surgeries. Lou was enthralled by the drag bar. Eldon also introduced Lou and Liz to a stealth trans woman named Elizabeth Farley, who'd been living as a woman since before Christine Jorgensen came out, but without hormones or surgeries. She served as another inspiration to Lou on the path of unconventional transition. Lou was encouraged to run for secretary of GPU, which he won uncontested, and also became the de facto trans leadership of the community. He and Liz continued to work for acceptance for trans people, particularly for trans women who were coming under greater scrutiny due to the increasing hostility launched at them by lesbian feminists. Lou's second article, titled Toward Transvestite Liberation, drew on this struggle and advanced the prototype of the kind of politics later popularized by Judith Butler. Still, Liz and Lou both found largely positive acceptance within the Milwaukee community. Lou's boyfriend, Mark, left for Berkeley to attend graduate school, which proved to be quite a relief for Lou. While they still enjoyed sex together, Mark had become increasingly uncomfortable with Lou's fixation on gay activism and gay bars and had taken up a straight girlfriend in response. While Lou missed him, they'd been together for nearly five years, so he also relished the freedom. Lou quickly hooked up with a gay ballet dancer who had attended a GPU meeting while in town named Charles. They continued to be friends over the next eight months, with the older Charles becoming a mentor on gay sex for Lou. Charles began taking Lou to gay leather bars and bathhouses, introducing him as Lou, giving him his first experiences truly being seen as just a man. In 1974, Charles left Milwaukee, but the two remained friends. After Lou came to visit for Christmas, Mark decided to drop out of school and return to Milwaukee. But despite telling Lou what he wanted to hear about getting into being gay, Mark was still uncomfortable being out in Milwaukee. They considered moving to New York and visited Charles there, who took them cruising and to one of Hollywood lawn shows. But New York held no appeal for Lou. It wasn't the city of night fantasy he'd imagined. He and Mark began having problems. Mark confessed he was impotent when with other men, but liked the idea of Lou getting top surgery. Lou, through his friend Liz, contacted a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist was receptive, but wanted to be paid, so Lou said, fuck him. Still, he desperately wanted hormones and top surgery by this point. In July 1975, he and Mark got on a train and moved to San Francisco. I'm always drunk in San Francisco. I always stay out of my mind. The next three years would prove to be a personal hell for Lou. He was unable to find work dressed as a man and became increasingly intimidated by the gay community of San Francisco. 
He clung to Mark for dear life, and perhaps due in part to these pressures, the relationship became unhealthy for Lou. As Bryce Smith points out, they moved during the height of what's been termed the Great Gay Migration to San Francisco, a period in which gay identity consciousness had risen, and gay men suddenly moved in droves to major cities like San Francisco in hopes of living an out life for the first time. Lou and Mark settled in the Tenderloin, unknowingly becoming some of the gentrifiers who were pushing out MTF transsexuals from the neighborhood. You can hear more about this neighborhood and its trans inhabitants and its history in our episode on COG. Still, unable to find work by October 1975, Lou was referred to the Center for Special Problems, which again you can hear about in our episode on COG. The therapists there were kind and pleasant to Lou, the first medical professionals he had interacted with in person in relation to his gender identity. Two weeks later, Lou found a job as a secretary at a sporting good company, but was asked not to wear a tie to work. Things went well until the following spring when Lou told Mark he wanted to transition. Mark responded by getting a straight cis girlfriend again. Lou moved out in hopes that some distance would improve their relationship. He jumped into the gay community in San Francisco, but found that due to the larger numbers of queer people, the community had grown big enough to sustain largely unconnected factions for gay men, lesbians, and trans people, a completely different situation to the small but very inclusive Milwaukee community he was used to. He went to gay men's bars, but no one wanted to sleep with him and he felt excluded. Right before his first meeting with a new therapist at the Center for Special Problems, Lou found an article on an FTM teacher who faced employment discrimination. Lou immediately wrote a letter to him, overjoyed to finally find another trans man. The teacher, Steve Dane, wrote back saying he'd like to meet when things calm down. This would be the first of many letters Lou would exchange with trans men across North America and the world. Lou also applied to the Stanford Gender Dysphoria Program a few weeks later, hoping to jumpstart the process of getting on hormones. Stanford did not respond, and when Lou's anxieties began giving him second doubts, his therapist latched onto them in a medically negligent attempt to dissuade his transition. Meanwhile, Mark threatened to break up with Lou if he medically transitioned, saying that if he transitioned, he would end up a, quote, mutilated Frankenstein, and that Mark wouldn't even be friends with him. Lou's therapist encouraged him to give up transition and try to work things out with Mark, leading Lou to wear women's clothing again. This plunged Lou into one of the deepest depressions of his life, exacerbated by a trip back to Milwaukee in 1976 that reminded him of how good life had been there. When he returned to San Francisco, Mark confessed to sleeping with yet another feminine cis straight woman, another betrayal to Lou and his fantasy of their gay relationship. Unable to be a woman, unable to find acceptance as a gay man, and unable to find a path to transsexuality, Lou considered suicide. His cruel and incompetent therapist, seeing this suicidal depression as a positive development, led Lou to joining women's groups, buying women's magazines, and getting a copy of Our Bodies, Ourselves. Lou quit therapy, not as a revolt against this coerced detransition, but rather because it had done what the therapist intended, he no longer wanted to transition, or so he thought. He threw himself into trying to be everything Mark wanted him to be, which meant being a woman. He had no life outside Mark, except in seeing his sister Mary Ellen, who had moved to San Francisco following Lou's move. But Lou's old cis gay friends, Eldon and Charles, were having none of it, writing him in support of his identity and encouraging his unique perspective as a gay trans man, which they thought could help expand the gay liberation movement. Eldon arranged to have Lou's piece on transvestite liberation reprinted in the new gay liberation book alongside work by Lou's longtime idol, John Retchie, author of City of Night. With this encouragement, Lou attended a meeting for transvestites he found advertised in the classifieds of a women's magazine. 
While it was entirely male to female heterosexual transvestites, he was thrilled to see that they intended to vote to change their name to the Golden Gate Girls slash Guys, which he learned was in an effort to include FTMs. At the next meeting, he finally did it. He met someone else like him in person, an FTM transvestite named Emmon. Emmon worked as a plumber for swimming pools, but despite having this butcher job than Lou's secretarial work, Emmon was less bold than Lou, fearing to go shopping as a man. Lou helped him to become more confident in this, taking on the role of mentor. Even better, Emmon was also attracted to men. Lou had hit the jackpot. He wrote about it to Eldon, quote, God, Eldon, I'm not alone. Everyone's just hiding. This closet has toilet paper stuck in the keyhole. slowly regained his confidence. He took over work on the group's newsletter and acted as treasurer. He also began contacting other trans organizations, seeking out contact information for their few FTM members, if they had any. It took him a while to catch any leads, but he eventually built up a small network of other FTMs who identified as gay or transvestites. Lou started wearing men's clothing more regularly again, causing tension with his lover, Mark. But he did so regardless, joining in the Bay Area's nascent punk scene, where his old Lou Reed look, leather jacket, white shirt, jeans, made him fit in seamlessly. He also began taking Emin to various gay men's bars. In 1978, Lou awoke to his sister, Mary Ellen, pounding on the door. She was devastated. Their brother, Patrick, had been in a major motorcycle accident. They flew home to find out that Patrick was brain dead. However, the hospital refused the family's request to remove him from life support because he was an organ donor, and this necessitated having a flat EEG reading for 24 hours straight. The family fought for three days, resulting in local media coverage to have the machines turned off, until finally, the hospital realized the EEG machine was broken. According to Bryce Smith, this experience proved to Lou that medical professionals didn't always know what they were talking about. If they didn't know what they were talking about with his brother, then they might not know what they were talking about when it came to gay trans men like Lou. When he returned to San Francisco, still grieving, instead of finding support in Mark, he learned that Mark had been seeing someone else and it was becoming serious. Lou broke up with him, finally seeing how Mark had been controlling and betraying him for years. After their breakup, Mark learned that Lou was pursuing gender transition again and tried to dissuade him. But Lou rebuffed him, saying, quote, Now that I'm alone, I see that if it is true we are all responsible for our own happiness, that we cannot expect others to fulfill us, and in the end we only have ourselves, then I better make peace with the feelings inside me. If I don't, it will be the only thing on my deathbed I will regret not doing. Lou reached out again to the Center for Special Problems, but they rejected his requests for referral to the Stanford Clinic due to his previous therapist's success in discouraging his transition and also his identification as an effeminate gay man. However, Dr. Lynn Fraser, an honorary member of the Golden Gate Girls slash Guys who was a cis woman therapist, reached out to Lou and validated his feelings. She referred him to Steve Dane, the FTM teacher Lou had reached out to several years before. After all the negative publicity, Dane hadn't been able to find any more work as a teacher and had instead become a trans counselor. Lou's interactions with Dane were revelatory. Dane was not only a professional who took his identity as a gay man seriously, but Dane was himself trans. 
Dane sent him back to Lynn, recommending he start hormones, and Lynn referred Lou to an endocrinologist. After some hassle intervened upon by Dane, Lou received his first shot of tea on November 16, 1979. Lou also applied for the Stanford program again at Dane's suggestion in hope of getting top surgery. They rejected Lou. Lou wouldn't take it laying down this time, though. In January 1980, he sent them an update informing them he'd been on testosterone already and had the support of his family. They rejected him again. Lou wrote back, quote, It is unfortunate that your program cannot see the merit of each individual regardless of their sexual orientation. The general human populace is made up of many sexual persuasions. It is incredible that your program requires all transsexuals to be of one fabric. I had even considered lying to you about my sexual preference of men, as I knew this would surely keep me out of your program, but I felt it important to be straightforward, possibly paving the way for other female-to-males with homosexual orientations, and we do exist, end quote. Emboldened by his success getting testosterone, Lou joined San Francisco's gay men's sexual subculture. He went to porn theaters and jerked men off. He picked up a drag queen from a bar who was very encouraging and who fulfilled for him his lifelong dream of sleeping with drag queens. But it was a fleeting confidence. Lou then tried his hand at picking up a trans woman, but she clocked him as trans and rejected him. Then he tried a boy he met at a punk bar, but the guy was straight and turned him down. Finally, he tried a lesbian and, well, you can imagine... All of these experiences taught Lou one tough lesson. Disclosing right away was the fastest route to being rejected. Lou started picking up men on Polk Street alongside the hustlers. The success he found here gave him a jolt of confidence. One man telling him that Lou put a lot of boys to shame. Finally, on July 15, 1980, Lou got top surgery. Though somewhat let down that he didn't suddenly feel like a man as the medical narratives at the time led him to believe would happen, he was relieved to have this, forgive me, weight off his chest. Sorry, I am the worst. Here's Lou talking in the late 1980s about this surgery. How strongly did you feel about the mastectomy? It was really nice. It was so good because I'd been wearing a binder, you know, since I was 22. So, uh, you know, finally I could take my shirt off. I could, you know, I could breathe. I didn't have this binder around me all the time. And uh, I never even took an aspirin for that surgery. It just didn't hurt. It felt so good mm -hmm. just to have that off. <laughs> After recovering from surgery, he went full on with gay cruising, finding lots of sexual partners in a short amount of time, primarily cis men. Although he did hook up with a trans woman, but found he just wasn't into her because she was a woman. Not everyone accepted Lou, though, and a number of men he picked up rejected him upon finding out that he was trans. Lou's mentor, Steve Dane, encouraged Lou to take on a mentorship role himself. Lou began lecturing classes and discovered that he had a knack for it. He left the Golden Gate girls slash guys to focus more on the FTM community and began working with Dr. Paul Walker at the Jonas Information Facility, a branch of FTM millionaire Reed Erickson's Erickson Educational Foundation, which you can hear more about in our previous episode on Reed Erickson. Here, Lou found his true calling. He was in charge of responding to all FTM correspondence, which sometimes amounted to more than 500 letters in a two-day period. This work inspired Lou to create the first FTM transition resource, a booklet titled Information for the Female Crossdresser and Transsexual. It became so successful that a second edition would later be printed in 1986 and a third in 1990, but we'll get to those later. In this book, he included the concept that FTMs could be attracted to men or women, and that FTMs could also be transvestites as well as transsexuals, a radical concept at the time that, according to Bryce Smith, paved the way for an FTM community that includes all those along the transmasculine spectrum. All of this work turned Lou into something of a celebrity. 
FTMs across the U.S. and Canada traveled just to meet him. By 1981, he had created enough of an FTM community to begin holding informal meetings, the first taking place in San Jose. These gatherings, which continued for several years, represented the very first FTM-specific support group, and members traveled from across the state to attend them. Lou changed jobs and found work at an engineering firm. Bored with the work, he put notice to leave and was surprised that his male bosses took this to mean he wanted a promotion. They ended up promoting him several times in rapid succession, something that had never happened in his work as an ostensibly female secretary. By 1982, he was able to hire his own secretary, and he paid it forward by hiring a known lesbian. Bryce Smith recounts this hiring in an hilarious anecdote. Lou approached her to offer the job, and she said, quote, I always wanted to work for a faggot, and Lou thought she'll work out fine. In 1982, Lou's young lover, Keith, who was straight and as a result had been initially reluctant about Lou's sexual overtures, moved in with him to the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. For all that he had lived, remember that Lou was only 30 by this point. Lou would later remember this year as the best time of his life, the two men finally achieving the happy, gay relationship that Lou had been seeking all along. treated him as a friend in public. This was half because he was straight and half because he was worried what people would think of him dating a transsexual. Keith wanted Lou to detransition to clear up the confusion being with Lou caused to his self-conception as a heterosexual man. Lou moved away from activism in this period, but continued his extensive correspondence with other FTMs, hoping to be a beacon to let others know being a gay trans man was possible. During this time, he corresponded frequently with Rupert Raj, a Canadian trans man who, I will note, is very much still around and a former colleague of mine in Toronto. He deserves his own episode of OFTV, really. Raj started the first FTM publication, Metamorphosis, in 1982, in which Lou contributed occasional pieces. Lou's father, whom he had grown ever closer to following his transition, died suddenly from an aneurysm as Lou went through a period struggling with the issue of not having had bottom surgery. His father's death brought a renewed sense of purpose to Lou, who returned to FTM activism in earnest. Lou inherited some money from his father and decided to put it toward bottom surgery. This decision brought an end to his relationship with Keith, though they continued to live and work together starting a small printing company. Lou applied again to the gender clinic, which was no longer part of Stanford as universities began distancing themselves from gender clinics during the 1980s. While he waited for a response, Lou tried to find trans women and drag queens to date, thinking they would be able to understand his need to be seen as a man during sex. In 1985, he hooked up with a trans woman named Monica, who answered his personal ad and decided that while he enjoyed the sex, trans women still didn't give him the same feeling he got with gay men. The next night, he came down with a fever and swollen lymph nodes. These symptoms were misdiagnosed as mono, but what was actually happening was seroconversion, the process of becoming HIV positive. In Bryce Smith's biography of Lou, it's heavily implied that he contracted HIV from Monica. But in reality, seroconversion generally occurs several weeks after sexual contact, meaning that Lou had already come into contact with HIV long before he hooked up with Monica. Misdiagnosed as mono, Lou continued sleeping with Monica and others, including Keith, for the next year. 
before the concept of safe sex was introduced to him. One of his partners during this time, Joseph, was a cis gay man who had had another FTM boyfriend in New York before. Lou continued to pursue bottom surgery, but was rejected again for being gay. He turned to Dane, Raj, and others to help find him a doctor, any doctor, to perform a metoidioplasty on him. The suicide of one of the 10 other gay FTMs he had managed to find over the years was a particularly difficult blow during this time. Then, less than a year later, a second gay FTM correspondent of his committed suicide. He bought a computer and used it to create a second expanded edition of his popular FTM guidebook. In this second edition, he included a lot of background on FTM historical figures, eventually leading him on a path to help found the GLBT Historical Society, attending their first meeting in March 1985, as well as beginning his research on Jack B. Garland, an early trans man that Lou believed would have identified as gay like him. Lou's old friend from the Jonas Information Facility, Dr. Paul Walker, had an abrupt shift in their previously friendly relationship when Lou approached him for getting bottom surgery. Walker said they needed someone who had never had vaginal sex and identified as gay to be a test case for gay FTMs, and Lou's sexual history didn't fit the bill. He charged Lou for the appointment for the first time just to tell him this information. Lou was incensed. With the help of his old friend, Lynn Fraser, Lou finally found out that Dr. Brownstein, who had previously helped Lou with chest revisions, was able to perform metoidioplasties. Dr. Brownstein worked outside the gender clinic system and charged half what they did for the procedure, part of why the people he had already contacted hadn't mentioned him as cis gatekeepers were trying to hold on to the power the university system had given them that was beginning to wane. On April 22nd, 1986, Lou got bottom surgery. Though the surgery went well, his left testicular implant burst two weeks later. Two months after that, a new implant was inserted. This implant didn't take and had to be removed as well. He'd have to wait another six months before trying again. To deal with all of this devastation, Lou joined a group for gay men with disabilities. By this time, over 1,000 men in San Francisco had died of AIDS, and this number was only increasing with each passing day. Originally called GRID, gay-related immune deficiency, AIDS was thought to only affect the four H's, homosexuals, Haitians, heroin addicts, and hemophiliacs. The virulently racist and homophobic Reagan government refused action, largely contributing to the devastating spread of the virus throughout the country and ultimately the world. Activists began focusing increasing attention on the plague, but it was still a year before the founding of the highly influential group ACT UP. I really strongly recommend watching the documentary United in Anger to learn more about the work of ACT UP and the AIDS crisis more generally. Before knowing that he himself was positive, Lou worked as an activist on the No on 64 campaign against the homophobic Proposition 64. Prop 64, drafted by a group of heterosexual extremist terrorists, in my opinion, calling themselves Panic, the Prevent AIDS Now Initiative Committee, sought to force publication of all known AIDS victims and to quarantine all people with HIV AIDS. Lou also decided to start a formal FTM group, having found a sudden and massive increase in FTMs in the Bay Area. The first FTM get-together, as it was called, was held on December 6, 1986, and he noted in his journals that it was a great success. 
Lou was on an upswing. He dissolved his printing business with Keith and decided to move out, finally closing what was left of their relationship. Three weeks later, this high started to falter as Lou started experiencing trouble breathing. He tried to brush it off, but the difficulties continued. At the December 28, 1986 meeting of the GLBT Historical Society, one of his colleagues suggested he might have walking pneumonia, so Lou made a doctor's appointment. But before he could make it to the appointment, his heart started pounding, and so he rushed to a walk-in clinic on his motorcycle. From there, his sister drove him to a hospital. The doctors diagnosed him as having AIDS and pneumonia. He had an advanced case and the doctor told him to put his affairs in order because it wouldn't be long. At that time, people were living less than three years after initial diagnosis. Lou was immediately admitted to hospital. His sister Mary Ellen fell apart at the news. Lou and his family and friends were given little reason to hope any drug was coming that could cure him of the disease. Lou felt an urgency to complete his surgery before he died. He contacted Brownstein and explained. Unlike many other surgeons who worked with trans people from the 1980s to the mid 2000s, who rejected HIV positive trans people or charged them exorbitant prices, Brownstein did some research and decided to go ahead as soon as Lou had recovered from pneumonia. He later explained that he did so in part because of his fondness for Lou. The surgery was ultimately successful and Lou's brother Flame came to help him during recovery. Lou began receiving care at the AIDS clinic, continuing his activism even in ill health as he educated the staff about trans issues. Lou posed for an art project called Faces of AIDS, the only FTM participant, which opened on his 36th birthday in 1987. More than just the only FTM in the project, he was the only known FTM living with HIV in the world at that time. Lou was able to get on AZT very quickly, beginning to take it the day before it was approved by the FDA but long before it would be rolled out en masse. Lou noted gravely in his journal that now four people in San Francisco alone died of AIDS each day, and those with the type of pneumonia he had were expected to die within 40 weeks of contracting it. Lou wrote to Paul Walker, who had denied him referrals for bottom surgery, to say his now famous line. Successful. And, uh... And I kind of took a perverse pleasure in uh, contacting the gender clinics that rejected me and said, uh, uh, you know, that uh, they've told me so many years that it was impossible for me to live as a gay man, but it looks like I'm going to die like one. Mm -hmm. Dr. Walker wrote him back expressing sympathy. Walker's partner was also diagnosed with AIDS, and within a few years, both he and his partner would die from AIDS-related complications themselves. Lou signed up for another experimental drug that ended up giving him a good two years of health before his pneumonia returned. Lou took on a lover named Corey during this time, whom he met through a service for men with small penises and their fans. Corey wanted to have a relationship, but Lou decided this was off the table. He was too near the end of his life and didn't want to put someone through loving him only to watch him die. He never fell in love again, but he and Corey continued to sleep together for some time. In 1987, he would launch FTM Newsletter, a component of his popular FTM get-together group. Rupert Raj, who had discontinued his Metamorphosis Newsletter, shared his contact list with Lou, who used it to spread the FTM Newsletter around. Eventually, Jameson Green would take over FTM and rebrand it FTM International, connecting a global FTM community from the seeds Lou had planted. Lou joined a local jerk-off group run by his friend Jerry. Jerk-off groups sprang up during the AIDS crisis before it was known that condoms were effective at preventing transmission of HIV as a method of harm reduction and sexual self-liberation in the face of the plague. About this, Lou wrote in his journal, quote, Finally, I feel like a gay man. Lou also joined the San Francisco chapter of ACT UP around this time. 
an FTM friend, Dennis, moved from Philadelphia to San Francisco to be closer to Lou and eventually took on a great deal of Lou's caretaking. Lou was in good health, but like many people with AIDS at that time, he suffered intense wasting, dropping weight and muscle mass rapidly. At first, he didn't notice, but it hit him all at once at Pride in 1989. He was unrecognizable. In the space of a single week, he lost seven pounds. The muscle wasting made it difficult for him to find enough muscle on his thigh to inject testosterone. His health rapidly deteriorated and he had to stop AZT. Resigned that his life was about to end, Lou was shocked when he suddenly received a flood of phone calls and letters from FTMs across the country thanking him for all of his years spent helping them become the men they were today. Lou's sons, numbering in the thousands now, were all grown up. He had created an FTM community out of thin air. Against all odds, Lou pulled through this health crisis. He managed to finish work on and publish his biography of early FTM Jack B. Garland in 1990. He completed this work in hospital while also organizing his diaries in hopes of publishing a memoir to serve as proof of gay FTM's existence. Though he would be unsuccessful in his attempt to publish his journals, he did manage an autobiographical piece titled Sullivan's Travels for a 1989 issue of The Advocate. The Advocate had previously turned him down for such an article several times, but they reached out to him in the end through the GLBT Historical Society. Unfortunately, they excised much of his text in favor of three pre-transition photos of him, and Lou was not pleased with how it turned out. Lou encountered trouble finding a publisher for his Garland biography, noting that, quote, the mainstream press thinks it's a gay story, but the men's press thinks it's a women's story, and the women's press thinks it's a man's story. Eventually, lesbian editor Barbara Greer of Nyad Press reached out and helped Lou get a contract with Allison Publications, then the leading publisher of gay and lesbian literature, who had previously rejected the manuscript with a form letter. The book was met with acclaim from trans reviewers such as Kate Bornstein, but was met with controversy in the gay and lesbian press as reviewers debated whether Jack Garland was a trans man or just a passing woman living as a man to access male privilege. Toward the end of his life, Lou finally found the acceptance he'd wanted from the medical establishment. Following a 1987 symposium in which gay trans men were presented on by one doctor for the first time, suddenly everyone was clamoring for Lou's attention. He worked diligently with a number of interested doctors, including Toronto's infamously terrible Ray Blanchard. Unsurprisingly, Blanchard pressed Lou on the question of whether he regretted transition due to having contracted AIDS. Unsurprisingly, also, Lou reflected that it was all worth it to be who he is. He wrote in his journal, quote, It may be the love that dare not speak its name, but it is surely the love that endures, that persists against all condemnation, even through the threat of death, of AIDS, a love that cannot die. To me, this is the only real love. Lou also filmed a series of interviews with Dr. Ira Pauly in Nevada, a leading gender dysphoria doctor, clips of which you can hear on YouTube. The clips you hear in this episode of Lou himself talking are taken from these interviews with Dr. Pauly. Lou and Dr. Pauly would film four interviews in total over the concluding years of Lou's life. These interviews would have a massive impact on the field of gender dysphoria, as well as serving as an ancestral treasure for future generations of gay trans men. In the last year of his life, Lou saw his former lover Mark one last time. The two took a walk with Mark's wife and children through the Castro. It was a bittersweet moment for them both. With the help of the Ingersoll Gender Center in Seattle, Lou published a third and final edition of his FTM guidebook. No longer a booklet, it was now a regular paperback. Before publication, it had over 150 pre-orders. In January 1991, the FTM get-together held a book signing party for Lou. 
He had just gotten out of the hospital after a bout of TB and was quite frail. In February, he had a near-death experience, finding himself floating over his own body, looking down on the skeletal frame this advanced stage of AIDS had left him with. He weighed under 100 pounds. He wrote his final journal entry on February 27, 1991. In the entry, he discussed meeting with FTM activist Jameson Green. Lou handed off his legacy of the FTM get-togethers and newsletter, giving Green his contact list and some advice on peer counseling. After writing about looking forward to attending a lecture by John Retchie, author of City of Night, the book that had propelled Lou into the gay world and fed his dreams of drag queen lovers, Lou wrote, quote, I'm sure there's a lot more I should be writing here but I'm going to sign off here now. They were the last words he would ever write. March 2nd, 1991. His sister and caretaker, Mary Ellen's birthday. Lou Sullivan died. Mary Ellen held him through the final hours, feeling his exact moment of passing. He was 39 years old. His ashes were spread in the San Francisco Bay by his family and 100 of his friends two weeks later. His patch on the AIDS quilt, the first FTM to be added, read, quote, One man who made a difference. You are missed. FTM. episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. This episode is indebted to the work of Bryce D. Smith, whose informative biography of Lou Sullivan, Daring to be a Man Among Men, is an absolute must-read. You can get it for $10 on a Kindle edition on Amazon. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com slash OFTV. Those who donate $5 or more per month have access to a range of special bonus episodes each month that tell shorter stories that don't quite justify a full OFTV episode. You can also tweet at me at Morgan and Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.